0: Broadcasting from Southern California. This is the Campus Church Podcast. I'm your host, Keith Darrell. is episode 51, Evangelism and Baptism. Behold, hoping hope that he might see it grow. Welcome everybody to the Campus Church Podcast, a podcast designed to encourage and equip you in the work of evangelism. I'm your host, Keith Darrell, and this is the podcast uh, yes, on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network, flfnetwork.com. And if you go over to flfnetwork.com or crosspolitic.com, you can learn a little bit more about what we have going on, which uh, the main thing this year, October 1st through the 3rd in Nashville, Tennessee, we we're having our first annual Fight, Laugh, Feast conference. And I don't know all the details uh, that will be taking place and who is all speaking and all of that sort of stuff, but that will take place in October, and if you are a member of the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network prior to September the 1st, I believe, you will get a discount to the conference. So head on over there, uh, become a member, throw in Campus Preacher, and you help us grow and all that sort of jazz. So uh, that's pretty exciting, and uh, I'm still uh, kicking away. Last week was probably my favorite week so far this semester. I've had uh, pretty good meetings, uh, good-sized crowds, as well as, more importantly, substantive interaction, where uh, the week before that, I was preaching on dominantly commuter college campuses, which was just the nature of it's a little bit slower. And one of the things that stuck out while I was doing that, and it first hit me years ago in our evangelism, and so what I wanted to talk about today is evangelism and baptism, because what you end up having in American evangelicalism is a lot of confusion over um, basically the place of baptism in salvation, the place of baptism in our lives, and everything else, because uh, most of us in very broad evangelical sense, uh, grew up where baptism uh, was basically a tag-on and more or less meaningless to anything related to salvation uh, because we wanted this strong idea— that justification by faith alone and no works and baptism is a work, therefore it can't have anything to do with our salvation. So it's kind of something that you do that is a first step of obedience. And so you believe, and then you you get baptized as a sign of your obedience to what is commanded of us, um, rather than the baptism itself being a sacrament. Now the purpose of this uh, podcast is not to argue sacramental view of baptism per se, um, nor is it to defend, say, infant baptism. uh, But rather, what I want to do is discuss its place in evangelism, because it first hit me years ago, and and it's kind of funny, because uh, I was preaching up in Idaho, and it was probably 2013, and Peter Lightheart, if you know that name, he was living up in Idaho and uh, working with Doug Wilson, and he was pastoring Trinity Reformed Church. And at the time, Lightheart, it, it may have even been Before 13, it could have been 12, but Lightheart was working uh, up there, and he was working in the PCA at that point, even though he was ministering in a CREC church. he was actually an ordained PCA minister, and he was brought up on charges by a guy, and I cannot remember his name, who ironically uh, brought charges against Lightheart for uh, you know, corrupting the church into Rome, and then once the trial was over, that man jettisoned to Rome himself, and I'm not even sure if he's in the faith at this point. I think he has a podcast called Drunk Pastors or something like that, or Drunk Theologians, um, so not really bearing much fruit at this point. But anyway, he went after... Lightheart pretty hard, and uh, to my knowledge, Lightheart was exonerated in that trial, and all that sort of jazz. I never played close, close attention to it, but I'm preaching up in Idaho, and a young man asked me, what must you do to be saved? And I say, repent and be baptized, and immediately he starts uh, coming after me uh, for saying, repent and be baptized, and are you saying that uh, that, that baptism saves you? I'm saying, I'm, I'm just saying whatever Peter said, and um, then he starts to go into the whole F.E. thing, and Peter Lightheart, and he was a Uh, his dad, I believe, was a uh, Presbyterian minister up in that region. So he heard me through the lens of Federal Vision and terrified of, uh, you know, baptismal regeneration was kind of the scary word. And uh, what I realized uh, at that point, and at that point I I was, you know, kind of sympathetic to the broader, um, I don't even want to call it Federal Vision, but just looking at the Reformation view of a higher view of baptism than what in very, I'm just going to say American Baptist culture, evangelical culture is predominantly Baptist in a way, and what I mean by that is uh, conversion, uh, a personal decision for Jesus, is of utmost importance. And then baptism isn't really related to that per se, other than an act of obedience, opposed to, say, a sacramental view that coming into Christ, that in some sense grace is administered um, and the Gospels preached during baptism. And tied into that discussion was. Um, at the time, I was reading you know, the discussion of uh, the sacramental nature of it, but but Doug Wilson had a book probably in 2005, uh, 2004, called Reformed is Not Enough. I'm going to read a, a quick little piece of that because I think it ties into the idea of kind of broader evangelicalism and the idea of the integration of baptism and something other than baptism taking its place. And so I'll read Doug, and hopefully we can explain a little more clearly what it means. He he says this, he Um, We must also remember in this discussion of the sacraments uh, that sacraments are inescapable. If we do not accept the two sacraments established in the Word of God, and by the two sacraments the Lord's Supper and Baptism, he says, uh, then we will make up our own. Uh, Here, sign this card, throw your stick in the fire on the last night of youth camp. And I think that's pretty vital, because, uh, and this is tying into the idea of evangelism, because when someone asks you, what must you do to be saved, what is your answer? And I ha- and, uh, and part of why I wanted to do this as well was uh, last week I came across a meme that was kind of mocking Calvinism, and it's called Honest Calvinism, and uh, it's clearly a scene of the jailer asking, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And uh, the preacher saying, absolutely nothing. You must wait to see if God regenerates you before you die. If he doesn't, what a pity. Good luck. And then they call that Honest Calvinism. And, you know, the immediate response is, oh, it's a straw man of Calvinism, blah, blah, blah. But... I have literally, in open-air preaching, have heard people preach along those lines. And I've, you know, because even people who are kind of like, I would maybe identify as uh, Arminian, but what you often have is, and it, it ties into American evangelicals, is, and, and the only way I can say it is Baptist culture. I have a buddy of mine who, uh, what do you mean by Baptist culture? You keep saying Baptist culture, and that's the only way I can kind of put it, so I'm not trying to disrespect any of you Baptists in saying this, um, but, and, and they're not even things that I always completely and totally disagree with, so for, maybe the best way to put, it, Paul Washer, if you listen to Paul Washer in a shocking youth message, and I knew a lot of people coming out of Paul Washer, uh, listening to him, and I, I respect Paul Washer, I appreciate much of what he's trying to do, uh, but a lot of people were expecting some sort of heightened existential experience um, that is the real indication conversion. So it's not, what must I do to be saved? It's, uh, you know, basically go home, seek God, have an experience, and then you know that you're saved. The Spirit will testify with your spirit that you're saved, and you kind of have this um, spiritual experience. And oftentimes that's the dominant thing in evangelical circles. And even like my hero, Whitfield, uh, he would speak about his new birth experience and would often preach in those terms. And so it's not usually, uh, you you know, kind of, you believe these things, the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus, therefore now be baptized. It's trying to push people to uh, primarily experience. And so even men I know who are kind of uh, Arminian in their theology, they'll kind of sound— Calvinistically, because they will preach in a way, Calvinistic y, because uh, they'll preach in a way that kind of tells you to go have an experience. And if you have this experience and it kind of becomes undeniable, then you know Jesus is Lord and he's king. And then, as a response of that experience, which was like almost like a spirit baptism, then you go get water baptism. And I think a more confessional view and a more historical view, and ultimately even a more biblical view, um, it does not necessarily exclude um, a an existential experience of a heightened awareness of sin and conversion and repentance and maybe even weeping and things like that. Um, but it is much more along the lines of uh, kind of believing. And so if your children and uh, Israel, you know, they were circumcised and they believed on Yahweh. They they didn't need a heightened experience to uh, know that Yahweh was their king and Yahweh was their God. Although given the sacrificial system and everything else, they they still would have been uh, laying their hands on bulls and goats and confessing their sins and uh, maybe even weeping over their sins and the things that they have done and stuff like that. And and so the new covenant um, flowing out of that and being integrated with that, what you end up having is the reality that. Uh, you know, even like this morning I was reading in 1 Timothy, that Timothy's faith was in his uh, grandma Lois, um, and then also his mother Eunice, and now lives in him. And so Timothy may have had an experience, um, but I don't think— being a Christian is predicated primarily upon a heightened existential experience. And most of us Reformed people know that, and we believe that, but oftentimes when it comes to conversion, we expect a big um, experiential like breaking of sin, basically like Paul on Damascus Road type experience. Um, We expect that to take place, whereas that's not necessarily normal. So when the disciples started following Jesus, um, it wasn't primarily— a radical conversion in the sense of we often take it to be. They left everything, they began to follow Jesus, so it was radical in that sense, but it wasn't this... you know, Isaiah 6 experience per se. And so that's what I'm getting at. So so oftentimes if I just use the term Baptist, I, I'm, I'm, I might be collapsing too many things, but it, but in my head what I'm often thinking is uh, kind of a look for an experience despite oftentimes uh, downplaying the experiential aspect of things. They expect a strong experience coming into conversion. And I'm not going to oppose that if you've had a strong experience coming into conversion, amen. It's not necessarily a bad thing, but the question is, is that normative? And is Paul's experience on the road to Damascus normative for all Conversions, um, or is Paul, like Isaiah, a unique case of someone being called and stuff like that? So, anyway, a bunch of things intertwined there. And so, in the reality of it is, I think Wilson's right, that when we're afraid to use biblical language and the sacraments, um, what we end up doing is inventing our own. and, And even doing this podcast, and I've probably mentioned this before, is when I was first converted. I went off to college, and everybody was talking about the sinner's prayer, sinner's prayer, sinner's prayer, sinner's prayer, and we didn't have Google at the time, and so I'm literally reading my Bible almost nightly trying to find the sinner's prayer, because I was like, I never said the sinner's prayer, and finally I realized it was the little prayer in the back of the the books, Of and I was like, man, I said a thousand of those in high school, every time someone hand me a track, I'd read it, go home, pray the sinner's prayer, move on with my life. And nothing was really changed. Um, And and that even ties into the idea of conversion that I was having was I I thought in high school that I needed uh, some experience. And if the Holy Spirit really came upon me and I was really converted, I would have had some heightened sense of sin and heightened sense. But within that, I would say in high school, I basically believed Jesus King, Jesus Lord, I was just kind of hoping for an experience, and the experience would have verified what it was I was believing, where a proper view would have been, you believe, now here's how you obey Jesus, and grow in faith, and everything else, and so, so I'm not totally, uh, you know, when I was growing up, I'm not totally separate um, from kind of having certain things, understanding that, so anyway, um, I say all that because when we're doing evangelism and in college, what we had was running around telling everybody to say sinners prayers, which I kind of began to discover was unbiblical. And then I wasn't excited about being in church. And they said, with every eye closed and every bow, bless you. I see that hand and go around the room and see the hands that were up where they'd invite people down. I remember I was uh, at a church in Norfolk, Virginia and, Uh, You know, every week people were going down to the altar, and I think I even went down there once or twice one summer. And so, so, so we're having all these things being done that, in some way, shape, or form, we were trying to get a commitment to Jesus. And what we weren't doing, though, was appealing to uh, what the scriptures actually gave us, as Doug lays out: the two sacraments of baptism and the Lord's supper. And so. As I began to think about evangelism, this was more so in college and the kind of the Calvinistic-y thing, I, I kind of became Calvinistic, and so I wanted to get away from any sort of invitation system. I even remember a critique of Billy Graham, and it may have been by Ian Murray, who I respect, and it was called the invitation system. And I remember thinking, yeah, we got we have to avoid the invitation system, because if I'm a true blue Calvinist, uh, it's God who saves, and any me calling on the will of man to do something clearly doesn't understand Calvinism. So I was kind of like in a, in a world of kind of hyper-Calvinism for a little while, at least in my own thinking. Thinking. And then I read uh, A.W. Pink's Gospel Duty. And A.W. Pink's a guy who a lot of consider a hyper Calvinist, but Pink was get- taking pushback from the Arminians because he was a Calvinist. Then he's getting pushback from the Calvinists because he had this thing called Gospel Duty and you're called to repent and believe. And and so, so I think I was kind of confused on, well, how do I go about evangelism? N- not even so much from sharing a gospel with somebody, but how do I expect conversion to look like? And ironically enough, I was afraid of some of the language taking place in the book of Acts, where if someone asked, what must I do to be saved? Um, I would say, oh, there's nothing you can do. And well, if there's nothing I can do, how does faith fit in? How does repentance fit in? How does baptism fit in? And it ended up becoming just kind of like, yeah, there's nothing you can do. You're kind of totally passive, which in a sense I would agree with regeneration is passive. But it kind of became I didn't really have an answer to that question. And if you sit down and you read the Book of Acts and maybe I missed one, but I think I counted nine baptisms taking place in the Book of Acts and people believing, them basically calling people to repent and believe, people uh, being called to believe the gospel. And so when we do our evangelism, we should have zero fear. Of inviting somebody to repent and be baptized, and so if you're doing evangelism in uh, work, if you're doing evangelism in any other context, uh, and what you're asking people to do is repent and believe, and you should not be afraid of that invitational language, like I often was, and I and I do think ultimately it's the Holy Spirit drawing people, it's the Holy Spirit working upon people, but how does the Holy Spirit? work on the hearts of people so when jesus tells lazarus to come out of the tomb lazarus come out has a dead man come out by the power of the word of god and so when you're preaching the word or sharing the word of god with people and if they're at a place after hearing you well what must i do to be saved you should have no qualms to simply say repent and be baptized and laying those things out and as i began to think about this issue more one of the important things for a guy who travels around and um You may often not see individuals. um, If someone comes up to me at the end of the day, I have a much greater responsibility to invite them to a church and plug them into a church, repent and be baptized. So if if, uh, baptism is the initiatory right into the covenant, just as say circumcision would have been the initiatory right into the covenant, um, and then then I have a much greater duty in tying that person in to a local church. Cause it's not me just hopping into a fountain on campus and baptizing somebody. Uh, but it becomes kind of a, it, it becomes a church ordinance of them being initiated into the new Israel, the new church. And so when we're, we should not hesitate in any way, shape or form, to simply invite people to repent and be baptized. And then also, obviously, that public declaration right off the bat, um, it's radically different than, hey, would you like to raise your hand or would you like to sign a card? And it becomes a private thing where you don't need the church for salvation. And so even like that sort of thing, when I'm on campus, uh, so even last week I was preaching and I mentioned the repent to be baptized and a girl's like you don't have to be baptized to be saved and so next thing I know she's you know basically yelling over my crowd that um, it, it's it's just so simple all you gotta do is say Jesus is Lord and you're saved. Um, but the reality of it is like, there's a sense in which it is that simple. Um, but that simplicity does not cut off baptism and baptism does not cut you off from the body of Christ and all that that entails. And so, you know, saying the Shema, hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, uh, say in the old Testament, let's just say that's kind of the confessional creed of coming in in the new testaments. Jesus is Lord. It's a confessional uh, thing. It doesn't negate integration into Israel. It doesn't negate the priesthood. It doesn't negate all those things. So the confession, uh, Hero, Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, is simple, um, but it's not simplistic in the sense that it cuts you off of the totality of what's going on in the covenant with Israel. And so when you confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, it's very simple, um, but that simplicity doesn't cut it off in the sense of it being simplistic, that it cuts you off from what's all going on in the new covenant, which is uh, the body of Christ, which is the temple of God, and, and all those things that have changed. And so, but American evangelicalism, very broadly, has totally cut off baptism, has totally cut off the church, has cut off everything from the message of what must I do to be saved. And that's why there's uh, so much basic confusion. And even for us Reformed people, oftentimes it leads to confusion on the simplicity of an invitation of somebody saying, what must I do to be saved? Our response is, well, there's nothing you can do. It's repent and be baptized. And we do know that you know those who are appointed to life, as Paul says in Acts 13, uh, or Luke says in Acts 13, they believed. And so Go home, uh, look at the book of Acts, and I'll just, uh, if you look at like Acts 2, 37 through 41, uh, Peter says, repent, and be baptized. And, you know, how scandalous is that in our ears, washing away your sins? Um, also in Acts 8, uh, you have two baptisms. Acts 9, you have a baptism. Acts 10, uh, 16, you have a couple baptisms. 18, 19, and 22 are the places that I um, found baptisms in the book of Acts. And so if you to go and you read those and you just think through your own evangelism and the place of baptism plays in it, Does it play any role in your evangelism at all? Or is it a total tag-on? If it's a total tag-on, I would say that we've moved away from New Testament evangelism, biblical evangelism, because we've separated initiation into the covenant, be it circumcision or baptism, um, from the the nature and scope of salvation itself. So that's that's what I want to talk about just because, I mean, all the time it comes up. And I need to write a tract so I can hand it to Christians um, because we're just so far removed from Acts. And then what I end up seeing the fruit of that practically on campus is these cultic church of Christ groups that are like baptismal regeneration in the worst sense of the word on campus and they show up and they read acts 238 uh, see repent be baptized for the remission of sins see 4 it's baptism for it in first peter uh, was it 3 where peter says uh, this this water corresponds with baptism which now saves you and so you have these people in these cults uh, that end up appealing to these texts, and the American evangelical is not ready for them because we've just run roughshod over them. And I think it is the Reformed tradition that is able to bring together well what's going on in these texts with the sacramental nature of uh, baptism the initiatory rite of baptism, and then even from there, the sanctification nature of, of uh, baptism. One other, I guess one other thing I want to brush on is how that interacts is this. So in Romans chapter 6, if you're doing evangelism and you're talking to somebody who says they were baptized as a baby, uh, well, I was baptized as a baby, and let's just say they are totally licentious, Um I would encourage you to open up Romans chapter 6 and say, don't you know that in your baptism you died to sin, and now you're offering up your um, members as instruments to righteousness? And go through Romans 6 with them, that here's what happened in your baptism, how can you live in sin any longer? And and you get to evangelize even those in the covenant, so to speak, who have been baptized and have turned their backs on... the, the confession that they made in their baptism, and you get to basically evangelize with them through baptism. That's what I've been doing the last couple of years on campus, was have been a little more free if someone says they've been baptized, is using that as a means to call them to repentance and back to their baptism. So if a Jew was circumcised and he's off serving Baal, um, you know, you've been cut off from doing those things. Why, why be engaged in it? And so Romans chapter 6, and what you realize in American evangelicalism is Romans chapter 6 becomes a uh, spirit baptism. And so even if you read John MacArthur on baptism, uh, Romans chapter 6 becomes spirit baptism because we're afraid of the sacramental nature of what's taking place. And so we don't think it means really water. It's spirit baptism, which brings us back to some sort of experience that we think happens when the Holy Spirit comes upon us. So it's it, it, it's all intertwined. And so uh, anyway, that's what I want to discuss in this episode. I think it's uh, important that we have baptism in a proper place. And When we go out and evangelize, we should feel 100% comfortable saying, repent and be baptized. Lord bless you, keep you. If you have any questions, comments, demands, rebukes, exhortations, feel free to reach out to me, Keith at Campus Preacher, Campus Evangel on the Twitter, Campus Preacher on Instagram, and Keith Darrell on the Facebook. Oh, and